Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, Fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. <laughs> Good afternoon. You are listening to Glass House here on Triple R. It's my pleasure to be with you once again. Big thanks to... Tanya for filling in last week. My name is Beth AQ. I begin by acknowledging that we broadcast on the stolen unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to elders past and present and extend that to any First Nations people tuning in this afternoon. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I do want to say a massive thank you to the always excellent Mel Cranenberg for making amazing radio from her home. It has been really heartening to witness people rallying and just making stuff happen amid these strange, strange times. I have been loving seeing all of the various grassroots initiatives that have been popping up as we yeah wade through this strange time. It's been a great comfort to sit down and really experience how powerful art and storytelling can be in times of crisis. I know that I have been glued to my radio because um, I think the, the comfort of it is is just undeniable right now and I, I hope that I can provide you with some company. Coming up on the show today, Australian-born, Athens-based writer and essayist Alanis Savage uh, joined me this morning uh, to talk all about Blueberries. It is her debut collection of essays. Um, It explores womanhood and the labour of writing and and what it means to exist and, and walk through the world in time and space. It's it's creative non-fiction, poetry, prose. It's quite experimental and it's really excellent and I'm excited to share the interview that I did with her. It is out now through text publishing. It might be something that you're looking to read while you might be in isolation. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. 
To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Triple R. My name is Beth AQ and you are in the Glass House for another Wednesday afternoon. Alana Savage is an Australian-born and mostly Athens-based essayist and academic. She's been widely published and has just released her debut essay collection, Blueberries. It's out now through text publishing, and she joins me now to speak about it. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thanks, Beth. Good to be here. So Blueberries is a series of, of 15 essays that interrogate uh, what it means to be a young woman, to be a writer, to have a body. Can you tell us a bit about the evolution of this collection? Yeah, so, I mean, it's been a hard one to talk about. It's one of those books that, um, to explain it to my agent, uh, to explain it to my editor, um, I just want to show them the book rather than kind of explain it, because it's a book about, um, it's about fragmentation. And by Fragmentation, I mean, it's about the kind of lives that many of us kind of like born in the 80s or 90s, um, living in a first world country, um, have a, you know, a wealth of opportunities offered to us, um, but no clear kind of path um, from one kind of like life stage to the next. Um, So it's about the kind of like the many kind of positions a young person today has to kind of find themselves occupying and negotiating in order to try to live a kind of ethical life, um, an exciting life, a meaningful life, um, and not be completely broke all the time. Mm. It's a collection that is, you know, quite experimental in form. It, it blends, you know, personal essay, journalism, poetry. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I suppose, the form of these essays and your thinking behind it? Yeah, so I kind of, I actually wrote an, a PhD about um, the essay and I was looking at it, I was doing a genealogy of the essay. Um, and when you go back to the origins of the essay, uh, what you find is that it's always been this kind of like in-between form. It's always been personal, but it's reaching out into the, like, the, the wider world. Um, there are voices. It's always been open to kind of play and experimentation. And so I wasn't really, I didn't feel that I was kind of um, breaking new ground with this book and the way that I'm approaching the essay. I'm kind of like returning to this idea that the essay is this kind of in-between genre that you can just, you can just use however you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, I'm, you know, some of it's journalism, some of it's you know, what you'd call cultural criticism, memoir, prose poetry. Um, but these just seem kind of like native to the the kinds of content that I'm talking about. So I'd say that the form was always kind of being influenced by the kind of thing that I'm talking about. In, my, in the first essay, Yellow City, which we discussed last year on this show, um, it's sort of broken into different voices. And all of those voices are my voices. Um, but they're using different pronouns and they're speaking on top of each other and they're arguing because this this essay was about kind of building, uh, trying to recover memories of a traumatic event mm. from 12 years ago. Um, and so this, using these different voices was a, a really natural way for me to examine that kind of dis, disjuncture of memory, that fragmentation of memory and the many selves that are fighting against yourself when you're trying to recover memories. Mm. It's definitely one of the parts of, of, of your writing that I absolutely love and admire. It's It feels so honest to be able to have 
you know, these kind of conflicting thoughts that are coming from the same person that, uh, you know, look different across passages of time. Um, you know, they look mm. different and they sound different. Yeah, I just, I, I really love that in your writing. Thank you. There's a kind of, um, there's a passage from Michelle de Montagne, who's the kind of like, he's known as the godfather or the progenitor of the contemporary, you know, the modern essay, the essay as we know it. And he says in one of his essays, I cannot keep my subject still. It's kind of sways to enforce like a drunkard. And I think that's probably one of the kind of the truest things about just an individual who's thinking in time and space. Um, it's inconsistent. A person is not this whole kind of unified thing. A person is a fragmented being with many, many drives and many impulses and many conflicting interests that are occurring at the same time. Mm. Um, Eleanor, your background is both as, you know, an essayist and as an academic. I'm, I'm interested how you feel these two um, practices affect and impact one another and how they've perhaps shaped this book. Yeah, so when I was writing before I did my PhD, I, I just had so much confidence in my um, in my opinions. I used to write these, like, gung-ho um, kind of editorial pieces, um, just kind of you know, demanding the revolution. And I still, you know, am demanding the revolution. But doing my PhD um, immediately kind of threw me. I suddenly realized that I was, like, not only not an expert in anything, but that I would have to work extraordinarily hard to become kind of competent in thinking in even one kind of, like, minor, you know, tiny little area in academia. Um, and that kind of that pushed my writing to do that kind of interrogation um, and to unpack all of my my beliefs. Um, and that definitely informed how I approach the essays in Blue Breeze. Like, I, I just don't trust my um, interpretation of events anymore. I don't trust that I, that I know I'm right. Um, and so when I kind of have an idea, you know, in, and, and I want to write an essay about it or a, a poem about it, I want to kind of pull it apart. Um, and so I think that, yeah, doing a PhD and kind of um, doing a little bit of, you know, a few other research projects has taught me to be a more, more rigorous writer, I think. But then also, I mean, I much prefer the kind of creative experimental writing that I'm doing over, you know, the academic writing form can, can feel like a straitjacket. Mm. I'd, yeah. I'd love to talk about, you know, some of the essays in this collection. There are so many amazing ones that I, yeah, I just don't even really know where to start. But your title essay, Blueberries, depicts that kind of conflicting nature of your thoughts around kind of class, uh, mobility and privilege and what it means to be at an expensive um, writer's workshop <laughs> in, in the US, which I just loved reading. And yeah, again, like that was a point where I felt really kind of relieved at your ability to kind of critique the system that you are a part of when I feel like um, often people try to position themselves like they're outside of it when they're perhaps not. Well, I mean, this is the thing about kind of about being born in a country like Australia, particularly if you're a white person, particularly if you've had the opportunity to go to university. Um, you know, you can have these conflicting ideas about yourself. Maybe you're not from, you know, upper class or something, but you still get to kind of enter these spaces sometimes that are really, really kind of prestigious and elite. Um, and when you enter those spaces, it does change you, and you're changing the space as well. Um, but, yeah, of course, it's, there's this kind of massive conflict going on all the time. None of us want to participate in elite culture and be elitist. Um, but at the same time, 
when you're using access to kind of like to do something, to make something, you are kind of like, you are kind of endorsing that culture. And, and this is a really difficult ethical position that I think a lot of people find themselves in. And instead of shying away from the problems of that position, um, I think it's important to look at it and, and talk about it. Mm, absolutely. And I think that, you know, perhaps existing in certain institutions, you know, gives you that kind of cultural capital and that mobility to be able to, uh, totally. you know, get more work and, yeah, it's a... Totally. <laughs> and I think even, like, you know, like, I did a PhD in creative writing and a big reason that I did that was to kind of, so I could get work um, teaching at a university. You know, I didn't want to just be working in a restaurant forever. Um, and that was kind of like between my, you know, my freelance writing and working in a restaurant, that was how I was surviving. And I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I've been doing it for, what, 12 years or something. Um, and I, I wanted class mobility. I wanted to get into the upper middle class or the middle class, you know. Um, and, and so when you're kind of like, yeah, using institutions to get that kind of like class mobility, you're also, yeah, you're also endorsing what that class mobility is doing to people who are cut out of that, those lines of mobility. Um, and so you become complicit, um, even if you're just doing it to kind of better your circumstances in the most mundane, ordinary way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's like, how do we break the whole system? Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, yeah, there's a line in Blueberries that I use. It's like, we need to, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like, it's kind of ridiculous to have these critiques of institutions and then to like, okay, we'll, we'll change one thing about the institution. We'll make it a little bit more queer friendly or we'll make it a little bit mm. more like, oh, we'll invite some staff, some faculty members who aren't from this, you know, class or race background. But that's to kind of completely change the institutions. You kind of have to like, you have to, un, you have to burn them down and start them again. Um, and that's obviously outside of the power of individuals. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Alana Savage all about her debut essay collection, Blueberries. Um, Alana, I'm interested in your essay, Satellite. You kind of grapple with what it means to, you know, be a, a white Australian, what it means to be a settler, what it means to be complicit in the colonial project that is Australia. I'm, mm. I'm interested, does writing about this um, bring you any clarity Oh, no, not really. I guess it's a way of kind of trying to process um, process that position, um, trying to resist um, the impulse to kind of remove myself from complicity or, you know, not talk about it at all, which, you know, white Australians are very good at doing. Um, but, no, it, it hasn't made it any clearer for me. I'm interested, you know, so much of this book kind of revolves around... Uh, exploring the labour of writing, of writing as work, you know, of the artistic lifestyle. I'm Uh interested in, you know, obviously we're in this global health pandemic and it's had devastating effects on the arts, on literature, on writers. Um, You know, how are you you feeling and what's it been like to release a book, you know, early, early March? (laughs) Well, it feels 
kind of frivolous. I'm like, please buy my book, read my book. And people have a lot more serious things to think about and talk about. And um, However, you know, there's pandemic reading lists, so hopefully you'll have a bit more time. You can read my book. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that, yeah, like I've lost a lot of work. Obviously, a lot of my peers have lost a lot of work. Um, but the institutions that have been, you know, supporting us, I just got a, you know, I just got an essay um, kind of accepted and instead of, and it's going to get published in like September. And normally when that happens, you would get paid after it comes out in September and the publication just offers me payment up front, which is just so generous and helpful. And um, and so I do think there's a, good, like, there's a good sense of like collectivity um, among artists at this time. Mm. Um, but it's still very worrying because I think we still, you know, our culture is still has this mindset that the arts are, yeah, they're frivolous, they're excessive, it's a kind of, it's something for decadent times, it's not, it's not a necessary part of an economy, um, and so I worry about what's going to be lost, mm. even, yeah. Yeah, I was reading an article that Ben Law did a few weeks ago in, mm. in The Guardian about, you know, yeah. how you know, important the arts are for the, the quality of our life and how when people are going into isolation, they're getting, you know, recommended books, movies, podcasts. Oh, totally, and... yeah. They're all made by freelance artists. <laughs> yeah. Who have no super. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wild time. I suppose um, I'm wondering if it has any impact on, you know, you, you write so much about the kind of um, the labour of, of writing and, and, and writing work how has it you know changed your your thinking around what you do and how you do it um well at, since the pandemic started I've been teaching and so and like a lot of educators my workload has kind of tripled so I haven't had much time to write um at the moment and also I'm do, yeah doing publicity stuff for blueberries um but you know there's something even when I invoice this publication I I've been writing, you know, I've been getting paid to write for 12 years and I still felt a pang of guilt sending my invoice. I feel like every time I invoice someone for my writing, I feel like it's kind of rude that I'm asking to be paid for my writing. And I think that the pandemic has made that even more acute, this idea that um, there are other people who, you know, need this money more. And the kind of money that you earn from writing is so, I mean, it's pocket money, really. It's not an income. Um and to kind of have this inbuilt idea that your work is not worth being paid for. You get that idea from the fact that for so long in your career, you don't get paid for your work. Um, the, you know, kind of the larger political economy tells you that artistic work is not valuable. Um, so I think in terms of the kind of economy of writing in my own life, I'm a bit worried about, like, yeah, how I'm going to kind of um, continue to value this work when it's not valued in the broader culture. Well, on a small note, I greatly value it and I <laughs> just urge everybody that... value you and everything that you do. <laughs> I, um, yeah, sorry, it's such a grim note to end on, but I, I think that, you know, this collection is is so compelling and it's been a real privilege to just yeah spend time in your mind and yeah your thoughts about what it means to be a young woman I yeah a lot of it resonates with me and I yeah absolutely love this collection and yeah thank you so much for your time. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for reading um, and and for chatting with me today. And sorry for ending on that, you know, super sad note. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Uh, You're listening to Triple R. That was Eleanor Savage there talking all about her debut essay collection, Blueberries. It's out now through text publishing. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website, 